So one of the questions in the interactive exercise yesterday um, that we were doing together was um, things that I'm grateful for in my life. And it was quite an ex a powerful exploration for me. And very immediately, um, two things came up kind of together, which was Dharma and kindness. They came up together and then they were very, very quickly followed by generosity. So Dharma, kindness and generosity came up very quickly as three things I'm very, very grateful for in my life. And I particularly remembered um, one person in the context of all of those three. And then yesterday evening, um, Caroline was sharing with us so um, such a profound and touching way um, about her first retreat at Gaia House. And so that kind of inspired me to kind of bring in this story about this person um, because he was very... Um, instrumental. He was very instrumental in me doing my first insight meditation retreat. So here's the story. So I was traveling in India in my 20s, as people do, at least some of us. <laughs> and um, I had decided to go up to Bodh Gaya um, because the Dalai Lama was giving some teachings there. And so I, I was all the way in South India, made this 72-hour train journey to get to Budgaya, um for the Dalai Lama's teachings. And as happens when you're traveling, especially young, especially, you know, in those days when I was young, <laughs> um, kind of the whole traveling scene is, you know, you kind of, you go to the teachings and then you go to a restaurant and you end up kind of seeing the same people at the restaurant and then you start talking and kind of then you kind of make friends. It kind of follows that kind of pattern. So there I was in Budgaya. It was um, January and I was talking to people and someone mentioned that there was this um, series of retreats happening at uh, the Thai monastery in Budgaya. And I thought, oh yeah, I've heard of that, you know, and I kind of had heard about that from one or two people before, and that, you know, these are really, like, really cool retreats, you should really do them. I really recommend it. And this was at a time when there was almost no internet in, in India, let alone in Budgaya. Um, and so the way people were registering for this retreat was by sending letters to the post restant in the post office. <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of people would send in these letters and obviously not so many people would then send a, a letter saying, I'm not coming. Yeah. So there were 130 places on the retreat and there was a really long waiting list. And so people told me, oh yeah, you know, the retreat's happening and 
you know, it's really cool and there's a waiting list and, you know, there's quite a lot of people on the waiting list. But, you know, you could go and put your name on the waiting list if you really want to do it. And I was like, ah, maybe, maybe not, you know, so much going on here, so interesting. And there was this one guy, yeah, who I, one of the people I was hanging out with in this restaurant and also happened to stay in the same hotel as me. His name was Nadamo. And he was like, no, no, you've got to go and put your name on that waiting list. And I was like, well, yeah, maybe, maybe not, you know. And every day I would see him and he said, have you gone? Have you put your name on the waiting list? It's like, oh, maybe, maybe not, tomorrow, <laughs> next week. And then one day he, he got, you know, really serious and he was like, you've got to go and do it now. Yeah. And I was like, oh, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> and he said, if you don't do it by tomorrow... I'm going to go and take you by the hand and take you there myself. Yeah. And that kind of got me for some reason. I, I usually don't respond that well to authority, but I don't know. Somehow that got me. And so I actually went and, and put my name on the waiting list. I was number 70-something. Yeah. And they said, well, just show up on the day the retreat begins. Show up with all your stuff and we'll see You know who turns up, who doesn't. It's a bit different than Gaia House. Who turns up? Who doesn't turn up? Um, we'll see if there's space. So, you know, I did. I checked out my hotel and I turned up and people were coming and registering and a whole bunch of us were there on the waiting list waiting. And I think there were 80-something people on the waiting list. Of course, not all of them turned up. And by the end of that day, everyone who had turned up and was on the waiting list was on the retreat. And there was not a single bed left. Yeah. It was one of those, whoa, kind of events. And that was my first, um, that was my first insight meditation retreat. You know, I was taught by someone who became a really important teacher and mentor for me. Um, I really felt very similar to Caroline. I felt like, oh, I'd found my my home um you know i'd done other retreats before and other traditions and this was like ah oh, this is i really remember saying to a friend afterwards this is it you know i ended up instead of just 10 days sitting 28 days because you know there were retreats after the other i can go on and on about this that's not the point <laughs> the point of the story was um this one person yeah, this one person who, for some reason, cared so much about me putting myself on that waiting list, and kind of what that, what that allowed. Because I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have done that retreat. And I'm pretty sure that if I hadn't done that retreat, I wouldn't be sitting here now. Yeah. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure. And for me, that's pretty mind-blowing. That's pretty mind-blowing. And luckily for me, we kind of crossed paths a few more times um, 
in, in kind of quite a long time span after that, including him being present when I was already teaching. And I remember at that point actually uh, taking time to, to go and thank him and to say, you know, you probably don't remember this, which he didn't, <laughs> you know, because, you know, not that significant an event in his life, but very crucial, very important in mine. But I was very, um, I feel so, um, so glad that I had the opportunity to thank him. You know, to just say thank you, that really, really meant a lot for me. So someone, someone said something to me today which relates to this. And they said something about, you know, isn't it interesting that we're on this planet which is moving? Yeah, we're on this planet which is moving. And we're, we, we don't think about it. Yeah, we know, right? We know the planet is moving. I mean, we're told that it's moving. We believe that it's moving. Yeah, we see the movement of the, of the day and the night. But most of the time, we don't really think about it. And for me, that was a wonderful reminder of our human condition. Yeah, so much is going on. Yeah, so much is going on. Some of it we know, some of it we don't know, and we don't think about it. We don't take it into account. So much is going on. For example, the conditions that are at play, yeah, in every given moment, like right now, there are so many conditions at play that are coming together to make this moment possible and happening. So I've just shared one such condition that I'm aware of in my life. Yeah, One that I'm aware of. And that's kind of one thing, yeah? Like I said, I probably wouldn't be here. But there's so many other conditions that came together for me to be here that I'm not aware of. And there's so many conditions that have come together to make it possible for each of you to be here. And the fact that we're all here together, exactly who we are, yeah? Not anyone else, not anyone less, is creating this retreat experience, yeah? I have to take this slow because I tend to get excited with this. So, so we're all here, yeah? We're all here due to conditions that are arising. Arising right now have arisen in the past to make this possible. Yeah. And this, you know, this, me speaking, you listening, that coming together, that alchemy, conditioned, yeah, coming together 
And what does it mean to open to that? Yeah, to remember that we're on a moving planet. Yeah, to remember that we're within conditioned existence. Yeah. What what does that mean for us? That's kind of something that I'd like to to go into a little bit more. So in Dharma language, just to give it the Dharma language, conditioned, dependently arising. <clears throat> yeah, everything is arising dependent on conditions. Dependent on conditions. Or another way of saying that is that everything is empty. Yeah, this is empty. Yeah, not meaning not real meaning not real as it appears to be, yeah? Meaning conditioned, made up, arising due to conditions that are coming together. And this is true of everything, yeah? I'm not the only empty <laughs> appearance here in the hall. Like to be sometimes, joking. Yeah, it's true of me, of you, of like I said, the retreat, this talk, this building. Yeah. All empty, all empty of this inherent, separate nature. So, <clears throat> I've brought some uh, props with me to demonstrate further. And I was joking with Sampo earlier that I don't seem to be able to get through teaching one retreat without bringing some sticks into the hall. So they're here. And uh, you may be able to see them. Beautifully arranged by Caroline Jones. Yeah, and if you can't see them, feel free to stand up and look. But they're just three sticks leaning on each other. <laughs> they're just there. Yeah, I tried to look for bigger sticks, but that was a bit difficult. So what are they about? So they're three sticks, and they're leaning on each other. If we took one out, the others would fall. Yeah, so each of the sticks is leaning on the other sticks, and together they're standing. And this is, for me, one of the most powerful images of emptiness. Yeah. Which another way of saying it is everything leans. Yeah. Everything leans, just like the sticks. Yeah. Everything is made up of conditions leaning on each other. Yeah. Leaning on each other, coming together to make an appearance. Yeah, everything leans. Nothing is freestanding. <laughs> yeah, if we took any of those sticks and we tried to make them stand on their own, we couldn't do it. Yeah, unless we stuck them on, in something, then they'd be leaning on that. <laughs> or we made them lean on something else. So nothing is freestanding, everything is empty. And really, the encouragement 
with these teachings is to not, as, as we've been saying in this particularly, don't just accept it as a truth because somebody up here is saying it or the Buddha said it. Yeah. But really explore that in your own experience. Can you find anything in your own experience that can stand alone, free, independent of something else? That doesn't lean on anything. So everything leans. And also everything is being lent on. Yeah, that's the other side of this. Yeah, conditioned and a condition, plural. Does that make sense to people? Yeah, everything that comes together also is a condition for other things to come together. So this is such a a wonderful thing to reflect on and to apply in our lives. And sometimes that word emptiness can, you know, feel, um, you know, a little bit detached or grim, yeah, or depressing. But if we really see it in, in this thing of like everything leans, or again, Thich Nhat Hanh <laughs> speaks about everything being full of something else. Yeah. So anything, yeah, anything is full of other things. Yeah, anything. And again, can reflect on the body, the mind. Yeah, do not exist independently. And so this understanding, this seeing, this remembering, it can really support us to live more freely and more lightly. Yeah, to live more freely and more lightly. If we remember this, if we apply it, if we ponder it and reflect on it. And it kind of generates a natural lightening up, yeah, taking ourselves less seriously. Yeah taking ourselves less seriously, taking life less seriously. And a natural shift from being concerned just with, as my, one of my teachers likes to say, being less concerned with this one, yeah, and more concerned with the whole. Yeah, so from self-concern, which is more narrow, to a much wider sense of concern. Yeah. We can say the trajectory can be from self-concern to life concern. Yeah. Concern for all life. And this understanding of conditionality, of dependent arising, of emptiness, really supports and enhances equanimity. Yeah, really supports and enhances equanimity. As a practice and as a way of looking, as a way of attending to life, relating to life. And I'd like to, to give an example um, of this. 
of what I mean by this. Maybe I'll just repeat that in case that wasn't clear, what I'm trying to give an example of. <laughs> How an understanding of emptiness or an understanding of the conditioned nature of experience can support um, a grounding in equanimity. Yeah, it can support a grounding in equanimity. And it may very much intuitively already make sense, yeah. But I just want to kind of flesh it out um, a little bit more with an example. So, I mentioned, I think, in, in at some point that I spend um, time every year in a, in a leprosy community in central India. And so this is an example from there. So the reason this community exists is that a lot of people um, who contract leprosy, the disease, even though it's it's completely curable and they are cured, and most of them are, most of the people in the community are already cured of the disease. I it's no longer active, um, but as a result of the disease, they um, have to leave their homes, their families. Yeah, they can no longer stay in in their homes and their, and their families, um, to do with uh, mostly social stigma uh, that still exists. It's a lot better nowadays than it used to be, but still exists around the disease. And when I'm in the community, a lot of my work is in the old people's home. So a lot of the stories that I hear are, you know, people who this has happened to, you know, whether it's happened 30 years ago, 40 years ago, or five years ago, or last month. Yeah. But hearing this sense of um, abandonment um, that, that they have. And as you can imagine, it, it's a very painful, it's a very painful thing to, to witness, to hear, to listen to. Um, especially, I think it's enhanced by the fact that this is a society which is still so, uh, the family bonds are so close, it's family units are so close, so much of the identity is to do with that. So, you know, if this is part of the kind of narrative of the community, you know, this sense of um, people having been rejected by their families um, to, to, to some degree. And until I think not the last time, but the time before when I was there, I had heard about it a lot, but I'd never actually witnessed it myself. Yeah. So one day when I was walking back from the old people's home, I was walking by the, the main clinic of the community, and I kind of looked over, and then one of the staff members who was out in the garden kind of beckoned me over to come over. Um, so I, I kind of, you know, started walking over there and um, I saw a, a kind of group of people. It's like a kind of like a, yeah, group of people um, recognized the doctor of the community, some of the, of the staff of the clinic. And there was an elderly woman there who was having her foot um, dressed and cleaned. 
and a few kind of younger people around. And as I walked over, the um, one of the of the staff members explained to me that this you know older woman had been brought by a family. She was a cured leprosy patient, but she had um, you know one of the ongoing issues with the disease is that there's loss of sensation in parts of the body, and then infection set in. And so she had a bad infection in her foot, and the family had brought her in uh, to get treatment for that because she would need kind of more treatment and then probably some bed rest for a while. And so I thought, yeah, okay, fine, you know, stood there and, you know, was witnessing it and communicating with people that I knew. And then the doctor, who's been the doctor in this community for more than 30 years, Dr. Paul, he walked over and he said to me quietly, they're going to leave her here. You know, she's never going to go home. And as you can imagine, you know, that really woke me up, yeah. And so I kind of opening up more to, to what I was seeing, what I was feeling. Um, and of course, you know, there's a lot of pain. And immediately there's, you know, some reactivity that arises, yeah, from the pain. Yeah, there's anger. There's judgment. Yeah. There's kind of, you know, all the stories that I've heard kind of come in. You know, knowing, oh yeah, you know, next year when I come, she'll be one of the old ladies in the old people's home. Yeah. yeah kind of all of that kind of streams in. And then this is where the practice kicks in. <laughs> yeah. Because there's that sense of the pain the contraction, the anger, maybe the judgment. And then and then there's that sense of, okay, here's an opportunity. Yeah, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? I don't know if you remember one of the phrases that we were using on the Compassion Day, which is actually Caroline's phrase. You know, may I see this as an opportunity for tenderness, for tender concern. Yeah, so opportunity, here's an opportunity. And that opportunity reminds me to look up, look around, open, yeah, just like we've been doing today. Take in, yeah, kind of take in who's there, yeah, and I go, ah, that's the son, that's the daughter-in-law, that's the granddaughter, yeah, that's the nursing staff, that's the doctor, who's here? Taking in the conditions, <laughs> emptiness, emptiness. What conditions are at play? What conditions are at play? Yeah. Granddaughter, a young, you know, young woman, probably. They're going to want her to get married soon. Yeah. I know that. Grandmother with leprosy, marriage prospects go down. Yeah. What conditions are at play? And then the question comes, what would I do in their shoes? Yeah, what would I do in their shoes? That's an interesting exploration of emptiness. And then the response comes, well, actually, I don't know. I don't even know 
what it's like to be in their shoes, yeah? Because I don't, I have no way of knowing. It's not even about culture, yeah? I don't know all the conditions. I don't know what they've led to. I don't know what they're dealing with. I don't know. So then there's a moment of choice. Yeah, do I stay with that flow of taking in that bigger picture of the unknown, the uncertain, the conditioned, the empty, and let go of some of the judgment and the closed-heartedness? Yeah. Do I stay with that? That's my choice. Yeah. Or do I stay closed? Stay in the safety of, I know what's right. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a moment of choice. Do I choose equanimity? Yeah, which is exactly this opening to the conditioned nature of things and to the not knowing. Groundless ground. Yeah. Do I choose that? And which of the two, the equanimity or the judgment, the closeness, which feels more wholesome? Yeah. Which feels more wholesome to the being? Which feels more attuned to my heart, to my understanding, and to the way I wish to live my life? And which offers more possibility, more possibilities? That's another question that comes in there. And thanks to all the causes and conditions coming together in my life, in that moment, I'm able to choose equanimity. Yeah, I'm able to choose that wide view, that big view and staying balanced and centered, yeah, within, yeah, within, in the middleness of these things which are really hard to bear, yeah, really, really hard to bear. And with that, compassion arises, yeah, staying grounded in equanimity allows the compassion to arise more fully, and that compassion is less limited, yeah, more immeasurable. Yeah, it's not just compassion for the person who's ill and is about to stay there. She doesn't even know. Yeah, it's also compassion for her family. It's also compassion for myself. It's also compassion for the staff and the doctor who've been witnessing this over and over again. And meta arises. Yeah, that sense of, of kind of friendliness and goodwill. And mudita arises. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, because suddenly I can see the love. Yeah, there's love there. It's not the end of love. And I know that, you know, I've seen some of the elders in the home who are there and they'd rather be with their families but the families come to visit the families phone them up sometimes it's not 
complete. Yeah, the abandonment. And the love is there. Yes, I can see that and I can resonate with that. Medita arises. And with all of those, a sense of well-being that is beyond the pain of that specific situation. Yeah, I think I was touching on it. Maybe in the last talk. There can be a sense of well-being that is deeper. Yeah, deeper than the pain. Includes the pain, doesn't exclude the pain. So that arises. And there's a sense of more aliveness and more freedom. A sense of more aliveness and more freedom. And I'm able to attend and to relate much more to the people around me and to myself. So that's a long example. Yeah, I really kind of wanted to break that down. Yeah, I wanted to break that down. How that understanding of emptiness can support equanimity to arise and to deepen. And how then, you know, the different Brahma Viharas, the different immeasurables are related and connected to each other. And so they can come up. Yeah, they can come up. So emptiness supports equanimity. Yeah, emptiness supports equanimity. And actually, I don't know if we did this today or not, but you know, when we when we expand um, the practice of equanimity, we intentionally bring it to that place of just the understanding that I may be with someone, I may be witnessing someone's pain, and really honoring that, yeah, really being with that, and also honoring the fact that I cannot take it away cannot necessarily take it away. Yeah, It's not just, I'm not the only condition in that appearance, in that arising. So that is, is such an important aspect of the equanimity practice, when we can fully feel, bring ourselves to that, and know that it's not completely up to us. Yeah. Kind of one way of saying it is we do what we can and then we let go of the attachments to results of things turning out a certain way. And that, we do what we can and we let go of attachment to results. That's applicable to any area of your life. Yeah. Any area of your life. And so powerful speaking to someone recently who's um, used to um, be in charge of kind of, she worked for, for I think also an aid organization or a charity and she was in charge of putting out their, um, I don't know what it was, but every once in a while, every few months, they'd send out a, a magazine or a publication and we were speaking about that moment, you know, of how hard it is to let go, you know, in a creative process. Yeah, you perfect and perfect and perfect and perfect, and at some point you have to let go. Yeah, you have to let go. That's, 
that is equanimity in action. We have to let go of attachment to results, and that comes up with everything we do. We do our best, we do our best, and we let go. And again, that can be so helpful for us to remember about ourselves, to remember about each other. Everyone is doing the best they can with what they've got, with the conditions they're in. Doing the best they can. And it doesn't mean letting go of, you know, making the world a better place. (laughs) Doesn't mean letting go of that. It's just holding that in balance. Does that make sense? This is really important. There's another quote from, I quoted him quite a lot, Christopher Titmus. I didn't say his name before. Um, He says, you know, I'm not sure if it's an original from him, but he says, um, life is perfect as it is, or the world is perfect as it is. Now go and make a difference. Yeah, so it's the opposite of that. (laughs) Yeah. Here is life. It is what it is. Yeah. Now go and make a difference. Don't give up. Yeah. If we did, we wouldn't be practicing. Yeah. So also in our practice, we keep showing up. We keep turning up. Yeah. But we don't grab on to how things need to look or turn out. Yeah. It's that constant balance. So equanimity, I'm sorry, emptiness supports equanimity. But also equanimity and the other Brahma Viharas really support an understanding of emptiness. Yeah, it works both ways. Works both ways. And I want to give some examples here, and these are all examples, I think, or mostly examples from this retreat. Yeah. So, for example, if we're doing one of the Brahma-vihara practices for somebody else, yeah, are we sending metta, are we sending mudita, yeah, or compassion? Sometimes we notice that as we're doing the practice, the perception of the other changes. Has anyone had that experience? Nod hard. Wave your hands. <laughs> yeah. So we have had that experience, some of us, yeah. We're offering the metta, we're offering the medita. The perception of the other changes, you know. And you might kind of suddenly stop and say, but what's that? I mean, it's all in my mind. They're not there. They don't know I'm doing it. We haven't talked about it. We haven't processed it. You know, what's going on? Emptiness, yeah. The condition of the mind affects the relationship. And if it's someone that you, you're going to see, you know, stay open. It may or may not change the relationship when you meet. May or may not. But it's changed something in you. Yeah? And that's really important. Our own experience changes as we listen to someone else. I mean, we've had that experience in the interactive exercises. Anyone had that? Yeah. Nods again. Any hands? (laughs) You don't have to. 
I was teaching with an American teacher one time, and he, he was always doing this. It was a year ago. He was like, you know, anyone ever had this happen to them? And everyone needs to put their hands up. I, I found that. I thought it was great. Yeah. So I'm trying it out on you now. So, yeah, experience changes as we listen to someone else. You know, like maybe yesterday in the exercise with appreciation and gratitude, you know, just feeling that impact, someone else speaking about something they're grateful for, and our experience changes. Yeah. Again, emptiness, you know, like you say, nothing really happened. Or did it? <laughs> yeah. Or did it? Or our ideas about things change, you know? Like people saying, oh, compassion feels good. Huh. You know? I thought it felt, it would feel, you know, meeting, experiencing someone else's pain would feel really hard, really painful. But it feels good. Yeah, so our ideas can change. And there's lots of these. I'm just going to put out some more. What happens to the sense of self? We haven't said this yet. So here it is, drum roll. What happens to the sense of self when we're practicing any of the Brahma Viharas and the practice has got some momentum? Any response? What happens? Sorry, it softens. And Justin did this. It opens. What else? What happens to the sense of self? Sorry? Less separate? Less separate? Smaller. Yeah. It goes down in intensity. Mm. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So what we're doing with the mind affects the experience of the sense of self. Yeah, what we incline the mind to. And so the sense of self can become smaller, softer, more open. <laughs> yeah. And if we check in with our experience, there's less contraction in the experience. Remember contraction? We spent a lot of time with it. So the sense of self is also mutually arising with contraction, with clinging, with dukkha. So clinging goes down, sense of self goes down. Contraction goes down, sense of self goes down. Sense of self goes down, contraction, clinging and dukkha go down. Yeah, All mutually conditioned, mutually arising. And then the less solid, yeah, the sense of self is, the less loud, the less contracted the sense of self is, the more well-being there is, yeah? So it's a cycle that feeds itself, yeah? Does that make sense to people? So been practicing, whatever, we've been, you know, going along, and then there's more of that momentum, the sense of self is less, we notice the sense of self is less, is more reduced, and then actually the sense of well-being grows, yeah? more whatever Brahma Vihara we've been practicing, more of that is there and the more fluidity there is in experience. 
some more. I'm just gonna. I think I only have one more example. Hopefully. So, this again, really, um, really useful. Hopefully, clear example um, from someone here. So, an unpleasant sensation in the body. Um, towards the end of, of yesterday, after practicing medita, an unpleasant sensation in the body. And then suddenly, from unpleasant, that experience is being seen or um, responded to with joy. Yeah. Hmm. What is that? Yeah. There's joy because I'm alive, yeah? I can, I can tell I'm alive, yeah? So there's joy, and then that opens up, yeah? And all the sensations in the body are held in this big space, yeah? In big space, and there's joy that then comes from that big space of equanimity. So the joy becomes equanimity, the equanimity becomes joy, yeah? Enhancing, feeding each other, yeah, moving together. And all of this, yeah, one of the conditions supporting that to arise is that through the day, yeah, through the day, the mind has been inclined to joy. It's been noticing joy. Yeah, that's kind of a spark. Does that make sense to people? You still with me? Yeah. Yeah. So all of this kind of really points, um, highlights, and these kind of experiences I'm saying, people have had them over the day. Sometimes we don't even notice, yeah? A few people saying today, oh, only today something shifted with equanimity and suddenly I realized things that were joyful yesterday. Yeah? So, you know, ways of looking keep shifting. But what we do has an effect. This is, you know, remember back to the, back to the sticks, yeah? Everything leans and everything is lent on, is being lent on. Everything is a support for something else. And what we see when we explore all these examples that I've, I've given, how we just do a practice and then really you know, big things change, yeah? Big things change in the moment. So everything is conditioned, everything is flowing. And we, our mind, our habits, our inclinations, our cultivations, that's all part of the conditions that are affecting experience. So something happens through that inclining the mind. Something is made possible. I thought this was going to be a short talk today. I'm sorry. I blame Rob. Okay. So these immeasurables, yeah, the Brahma Viharas, these best homes are the natural abiding places of an awake and free mind. Yeah, they're the natural and an awake and free mind. These are, 
Yeah, these are the natural states of that mind, of a mind that's free, a mind that's awake. And we've all had tastes of that so far over the days. Yeah, Even if there have been tiny little moments, we've had a taste. And as we cultivate them, as we incline them, incline to them, as we bring them in, yeah, intentionally as ways of looking. We are training the mind, yeah, training the, the mind, and we're impacting experience so that they become more natural, more accessible, and more applicable resting places for us. I did an experiment once on a retreat where for 24 hours, in all the transition times, you know, the kind of dead times, you're walking from here to there, eating, serving myself food, going to the toilet, having a shower. You know all those times? Yeah. All those times I was doing metta practice. Yeah. 24 hours. And not, not necessarily on the cushion in the walking, just in all the transition times. I was doing metta practice. After doing that for a day, I woke up in the next morning, and I'm not a happy person when I wake up usually. Woke up in the morning. And in my mind was, may I be happy? May I be peaceful? Yeah. May I be safe? May I live with ease. 24 hours. Yeah. That was one hell of an experiment. <laughs> You've got more than 24 hours. You're welcome to try. <laughs> if you like the practice, you have to like it to a certain degree. But we can do that, yeah? The mind is that flexible, that pliable, yeah? It's really possible to work with it. Really, really possible to work with it with patience and playfulness and creativity. Really, really possible. And when we do that, it increases our own well-being and it increases the well-being of others around us. So I just want to close with a short story, one of my favorites and one that I've told many times before. Um, it's a story from Ram Das about this, yeah, about this possibility. And I think pretty sure this story is from his LSD days. So he, you know, that part is not, um, not, you know, I'm not trying to recommend <laughs> that aspect <laughs> of his experience. That's up to you to decide when you're off retreat. Um, so Ram Das turns up at a family dinner with his family, um, and he's in a, he's he's groovy. Yeah, he's in a groovy state of mind. And he sits down at the dinner table, and there's his parents and his brother and his brother's wife. I think that's pretty much there. They're all there sitting around the dinner table. And they have, you know, one of those, you know, I can say, Jewish family dynamics when they don't always say such nice things to each other. So, you know, there he is. He's sitting at the dinner table, and his brother's sitting across from him. And his brother, I'm... I'm going to paraphrase here because I've told this story so many times I can't remember which parts are him and which parts are my additions so apologies um, for, to Ram Das for this but his brother you know kind of looks at him and says Ram Das what's with that haircut you know you look really awful you know couldn't you make an effort ever and you know Ram Das is there feeling groovy and 
So in his grieviness, he listens to his brother and he just imagines, as his brother is speaking, he sees this arrow coming from his brother towards him. Yeah, and the arrow is making its way across the dinner table towards him. And in his imagination, he puts out his hand and he just grabs the arrow. And then he takes it and he puts it down next to his plate. Yeah. And then he says back to his brother, Oh, you know, it's really nice to see you. You're looking really well. And in his imagination, you know, he's sending this heart going over across the dinner table, you know, and kind of landing on his brother. And this continues, yeah? You know, his brother says, you know, and what I heard about this scandal you had at Harvard and what we were thinking, and arrow coming his way. And again, he plucks it midair, puts it down next to his plate. And he says back, you know, you and your wife looking really happy together. It's so nice to see you that way. Again, the heart is going across the dinner table. And, and this goes on, yeah, for, you know, throughout the dinner for quite a long time. And he says by the end of that meal, he's, he's got quite a collection of arrows next to his, next to his plate. But, you know, the whole family's smiling and, you know, his brother's got his arm around his wife and, you know, the parents are really relaxed and the whole atmosphere has changed, yeah? The whole atmosphere has changed. And I, I love that story because this is what we're practicing, yeah? This is what we're practicing. To see, yeah, that that arrow is both not personal and I don't have to let it hit me, yeah? I can pluck it, not take it personally, put it down, remember the conditions, yeah? Remember the causes, remember the conditions, remember the habits of a lifetime. And I can send back something completely different, yeah? Completely different, yeah? And that can change the atmosphere, probably just for that time. <laughs> Yeah. But then we can do it again. Yeah. Whenever we feel strong enough, steady enough, available enough, we can keep doing that. So this is where the path leads. Yeah. This is where the path leads and it's really worth remembering that sometimes. That's where the path is leading us. That's where we are leading the path. Yeah, sometimes spoken of as the sh sh sure heart's release. Yeah, the heart's release. Resonant, yeah, resonant, full of goodwill, compassion, joy, and of equanimity. All dancing together in emptiness. So let's just have a quiet moment to close and you can stay in your comfortable positions.
So may our practice together lead us further on the path to emptiness and love. And may our practice together be for the benefit and the well-being of all beings everywhere. Thank you for your listening and for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.